As my old Irish teacher used to say, Mullen on Uber on far, the work praises the man. If any man's work speaks for him, it's certainly the case with this interviewee. He has been the President of the United States of America. In fact, he's been several Presidents of the United States of America. The one most of us will think of is President Jed Bartlett in Aaron Sorkin's West Wing. He's been an American Army Captain with a mission to seek and terminate with extreme prejudice, one Colonel Walter E. Kurtz in Apocalypse Now from 1979. He's been a Union Representative who would never measure a man by the size of his wallet in Wall Street from 1987. And he's been a disillusioned garbage man who goes on a killing spree in Nebraska in Badlands from 1973. And who are his workmates? We're talking about directors like Terence Malick, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Richard Attenborough, Oliver Stone and Martin Scorsese, to name but a few. He shared the screen with Orson Welles, Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Trevor Howard, Sissy Spacek, Harrison Ford, Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper and his own sons, Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez. But Ramon Gerard Estevez is more than just his work. He's more than just the sum of his parts. He's a man of faith. He's a man of family and a man of fearsome social sensibility. And we can claim him as one of our own. He's an Irish citizen. He has a Tipperary mother and a Galway education. Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Sheen. Thank you, don't get up. (laughs) I want to know what all that applause was going on before I came out here. You were explaining something about the fire exits and suddenly the audience applauded. I, I've never seen a fire exit get an applause before. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Martin, they're clearly very, very happy to see you. Are you happy to be back in Galway? I am. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I went to school for a little while here and uh, I got an honorary degree. They were delighted that I was uh, leaving and uh, <laughs> wanted to make sure I didn't have to come back. But it, it wasn't just an honorary degree. You decided then that you would do some real study. You could call it that, yes. I, I, I had this romantic image of going to college. I'd never gone to school as a youngster. Now I understand why you should go to school while you're young. You know, It takes a lot of energy. But it was a great experience. Uh, I did just one semester in 2006. I came over in the spring of 06 uh, to receive an honorary degree. And uh, afterwards, there was a reception and the president uh, of the university asked me what my plans were now that the West Wing was uh, finished. And I said, well, I, I have enough degrees. I could use an education. W- would you allow me to come here and study? And he said, if you're serious, you'd be as welcome as the flowers. And so. Uh, I decided, yeah, I'll do this. But I had this romantic image of it, you know, and uh, I, I wasn't a very good student. But I was allowed to study earth and ocean science and a bit of Shakespeare and philosophy and computers. I took the computer class, which was six weeks. I flunked. <laughs> and they said, maybe you should take it again, because everything was predicated on the computers. You couldn't find your classes or grades or anything else. And, and so I took it again and flunked. And, the semester ended, so there you have it. <laughs> but it was a great thing, and can I tell you about my very first day on yeah, campus? Yeah, of course you can. You know, we're right around the corner from the campus, and I arrived all excited, 
uh, walking to my first class. This had been in early September of 06, and it was pouring rain, and I'm moving along, and a voice yells out to me from under a tree, and it was a young fellow smoking a cigarette, and he says, is it yourself? That <laughs> <laughs> was the first time I talked to a tree, and I, I was astonished, and I said, tis. <laughs> and he said, where's your minder? I said, my what? I, what, do you, what is a minder? He said, you know, your tug, your bodyguard. I said, I've none. He said, more power to you. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you didn't need a minder then in Galway. Was there a freedom here that perhaps you, you wouldn't have at home? There was, yeah. You know, I'm, I don't know if you know, but my mother's from nearby here, Boris Kane, County Tipperary. And I've been coming here since 1973 and um, become very close to all my cousins down in Barza Kane and um, Cool Barn and, and Nina and Russ Gray, all over that area. Any of the Tipperary crowd in this afternoon? Is there some? Are some of the lads here? Where are you? <laughs> you? You did tell me yesterday, uh, however, that they were very shy cousins, so that you could be out. They could be out there keeping very quiet. Oh, it's true. Yeah, three of them were at NUI, and they never told me when I was studying. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they never said a word. <laughs> You, you've mentioned Boris O'Kane there, and in fact, we were in this very theatre last night watching the Thaddeus O'Sullivan film, Stella Days, in which you play Father Daniel Barry, mm -hmm. a priest who loves the cinema. Why did you want to play the part? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and I got to have curly hair. <laughs> I've always wanted curly hair. <laughs> and I've always wanted to play the piano and tap dance. He, he is a phenomenally interesting man, though, that, that Daniel Barry. He was great. He character. was a canon. His name was not uh, uh, Father Barry. It was Cannon, if any of you remember his real name. Some of the last Patrick Cahill. Remember. Cannon Patrick Cahill. Uh, you know, the real guy. And he, he was very fond of the cinema, and he used to make little films himself. And he began to form the idea of building the first cinema in northern Tipperary, I guess it was. And he did. And he called it the Stella, which means star. And uh, so basically that's what our film is about. But it was enlarged to include the interior life. He was going through a, a crisis with his vocation and uh, his priesthood. And so that was included and gave it an emotional level. But he was a deeply caring man and you know, he tried to unite the community around this uh, cinema as well as the, 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 the church. And so he kind of combined the two and he exposed a lot of the weaknesses in both of them. And he, as a result, he suffered greatly. He, he yeah. might have been quite an unusual priest for that time. The 1950s in Ireland, we don't associate, you know, priests who were caring and mm -hmm. thinking of the people around them. A priest who was fighting his bishop, played by Tom Hickey, and a priest who was fighting the local politician, played in the film by Stephen Ray. Yeah, do you know, uh, Stephen Ray is here. He's he here is, in the audience. He's out in our audience. Say hello to us. Don't Stephen deny it, Stephen. Where are you? Where is he? He's absolutely brilliant. Go back to last night. And, I and can't, it's in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's try to go back there in, okay. some, in some way. Yeah. You're sitting down there, or let me say, Ramon Estevez is sitting down there, seeing Martin Sheen up there. What do you see? Do you see a performance? Do you see what you were doing at the time, what is it? Well, it's a, that's a very good question. Frankly, you have to, and I think most actors 
feel this way when they see themselves, particularly on a big screen. You're watching, and you're seeing it at knowing that the people with you are seeing it for the very first time in public. It's an exposure that you can't possibly appreciate unless it's happened to you, you know? And it's like, you can't be that person. That's only an image of who you are. You have to divorce yourself. And you realize in one sense that you've been given, uh, you know, kind of like a, uh, a license to go to those places and do those things publicly where you are allowed to delve into the things that are private and expose them through a character. So the license is that you can do this for that purpose, but no other. If you do that in, in a pub or on the street, you end up in the nut house, you know. And a lot of us have, you know, <laughs> me included. <laughs> but if you do it in the context of an art form, uh, then you're taking private pain public for a purpose and the audience need not know what the pain is, or the joy, you know. Um, but you're allowed to explore that in that way. And, and, and so when you're watching it, you, you return to yourself, and you're given an example of how wonderful it is to be an actor or, or an artist and uh, have this experience that is so, um, I, I hate to use the term, sacramental, but it is. It is something very sacred, deeply personal. If it's not personal, it's impersonal. If it's impersonal, no one cares, and you shouldn't bother doing it, you know. But it's also a transcendence, do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's something that you transcend, and it's like, I, you know, I, I have no memory of ever not being an actor. I, I, you know, as a boy, I, five, six years old, I didn't know what it was. I didn't have any language. I didn't have any experience. There was no one to talk to or explain it. Then I started going to the movies, re being five and six years old, and gradually it dawned on me, oh, I'm one of them. What's the problem? <laughs> you know, it's great. I know how to do that. And go explain it. I didn't know. I couldn't explain it. I just knew that I was one of them. And, and I also knew at the time, it's amazing, and I think most actors, most artists will confer this as well, that you know that if you do not do that thing, you will never be happy. You will never know yourself, and you will never be free. So you don't think in terms of, of making a living or, or, or uh, being known for doing it. You just know that that thing must be done for you and you alone. Otherwise, you will end up a very unhappy person. And so, and so I give thanks and praise every day that I get to do it. And even at this old age, I still get a kick out of doing it. What old age are you Oh, gosh, about? well, I'll be 71 next month. That's, that's 60. There I go with the fire exit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's 64 years since that young boy in Dayton, Ohio, had, I, I presume, a calling, like a sort of yeah, a priestly call calling. Yeah. That yeah. Did, did you hear, like as we hear in, the, in, in Silidus, did you hear the voice in the head, or was it your own voice saying, as you said, that's it, I'm going to be that, I'm off. I knew it. It, th there wasn't any question of uh, not doing it or yeah. not hearing it. It's who I was, and, and you, it was where I had to go to be myself. You know? And you went, you went to New York then? Not then. I, I waited another and, 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in your, in Can your you teens, imagine arriving in New seven, York at yeah. six years old saying, <laughs> I'm here to audition for the play? <laughs> well, mind you, Make the, an interesting story, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
But then in your teens, you did. You, you went to New York. I was 18, I went, yeah. And you became part of living theatre. Mm-hmm. The, the New York of the 60s that you went to, how vibrant a, a theatre scene was that? What was oh, happening? Geez, it was amazing, you know. These people were... were uh, the living theatre was a company of very radical, committed uh, pacifists, uh, vegetarians, uh, artists, uh, intellectuals, amazing group of people uh, headed by Julian Beck and Judith Molina. They founded the theater in the mid-50s and they were going about doing plays in the streets and in lofts anywhere where they could get a showing. And they finally got a theater on 14th Street and 6th Avenue and they, they hit it with a play called The Connection. It was an expose about uh, heroin addicts. Uh, and this was in 1960. And it was an enormous hit. And it allowed them to go to open the repertory and do all kinds of plays. But when I came there in 1960, late 1960, they, they were doing a, a Pirandello play and a Brecht play. And so they had these three plays in, in repertory. And I was hired uh, as a general understudy and a uh, stagehand, you know, because they were constantly changing the scenery. And uh, I was paid $5 a week, and I was worth every cent. <laughs> and as a compensation, they said, we have a friend downtown at that time on Christie Street who had a soup kitchen, and they didn't charge anything, and anyone who was just hungry could go down there and get a bite, and so they sent me down there, and the place was the Catholic worker. And their friend was Dorothy Day, who's you know, recently up for canonization. It's true. Uh, she was this extraordinary woman who began the Catholic worker. And I think you have Catholic workers here. They were beating up airplanes out at uh, Shannon Airport when I was here in 03, and I gave them a presidential pardon. <laughs> a wonderful bunch. They wrote a book called Hammered by the Irish, a great story of how they tried to prevent the Americans from landing here on their way to Iraq to start the war, you know. By the way, if, if you were living in Ireland and an Irish citizen, you would be down there with them then, would I you? I would hope so. Yeah. Protesting against President Barack Obama? Not Mr. Obama. He didn't start it. Hmm. Although he's now taking it on as his mantle. But no, I'm talking about uh, Mr. Bush, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> Let, let's How go did back I get off on this tent? We're talking about the living theater. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Let's go right. back to the living theater. And so I, I ended up in one of their plays. And shortly afterwards, the Living Theater was invited by the U.S. State Department to represent the United States in the Teatro de Nacion in Paris that summer. And they made a whole European tour over it. And I, I went with them. And it was a great experience. And, and it just, uh, just kind of changed the whole direction of my, my life and my career. When then did Terence Malick come into your life? Because he's a man you've often spoken of as being yeah. a, a, an important mentor as yeah, well. Yeah, he was, yeah. Uh, we met uh, over in L.A. in 1971. He was casting a film. <laughs> this is so showbiz. I had gone to this audition for this haberdashery. Uh, I would go, I'd gone there to model a pair of trousers for this commercial, and I, I didn't get the job, but on the way out, I was stopped by this lady who was casting this movie being directed by Terrence Malick. Oh, she says, you look familiar. 
and I think you're right for this part. Would you do an audition? The director's not here. He's off looking at locations. And he's, he mentions you and doesn't think you're right. You're too old. But I think you are right. And I want him to, I'm going to make a little video of you doing some scenes and uh, see if I can change his mind. Will you, will you do it? I will, I said. And so I studied the, these few scenes. And, and as I'm studying it, I thought, this character seems familiar. Would this be based on Charlie Starkweather, the infamous serial killer in America in 1959? And, he, and she said, yes, it's, it's him. I said, oh, I knew about that guy. OK. And uh, so I, I did this little audition. And I forgot about it. And a few weeks later, I get this call from Terrence Malick and uh, says, uh, you know, I didn't think you were right for the part, Martin, but maybe you Maybe y'all should come in. We could talk about it, you know. That's why he's out. He's so lovely. And so I went in to meet this guy, and he was the shyest human being I've ever met. Still, mm. hopelessly shy. And uh, and so uh, I began to work with this little redheaded girl from Texas. And the two of us would do these little scenes together, and he would film them. In those days, they had video cameras, and they were on tripods. You couldn't move them. He could only get the frame right here. So you had to enact the scenes kind of like this, you know. <laughs> there was no move. It was all interior, you know. And he ended up giving me the part. And, I, it was, and then I finally got the script. The script was called Badlands. And I read it, and, and I told him, I said, you know, this is, I've never done this in my life before. But I, this is such a good script, but I'm going to spoil it because I'm too old. The character you're asking is, for is 19, and I'm already 31. He said, I know, but I'm thinking I'll make him a bit older. Will you do it? And I said, I will. And so I did. And then we, he, he went overseas. He went through a terrible time, through a divorce. He'd made another movie while I was in the Philippines. He did a film called uh, um, Days of Heaven, another brilliant work. And then he disappeared, and he, he, marriage fell apart, and he disappeared. And I didn't see him for years. And I was in Paris. Uh, doing a little film in 1981. And I'm walking down the Rue Jacob one day. Why would I remember that? And, and because I see this guy coming to me, I said, is it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and it was Terry. And he'd become, he'd become this, you know, this expatriate. And Martin, is that you? How you doing? I said, well, I'm here in Paris doing this little thing. Well, let's go and have some supper. And I did. And he's so hopelessly shy that one day we were walking down the street together and someone recognized me and wanted an autograph. He kept walking. I lost him. <laughs> totally. He disappeared. <laughs> have you seen, by the way, the, have you seen the most recent Terrence? Yes, have I, I did. I just saw it a few weeks ago. It's powerful, powerful stuff. A poet of the screen, I think, is how you have described him in the He's past. A yeah, a screen poet. That's how you describe Terence Malick, I think. But for me, he became so, something deep, deeply important to me. Because uh, at that time, in 81, I was in Paris doing this thing, and I was going through a very difficult period. And I had, you know, I had left the church, and I had left all sense of, of myself. And I was drinking heavily and, and, and mucking about. And, very confused. I'd come out of apocalypse now. Who could blame me? I mean, what would you expect out of, <laughs> out of that madness, you know? Uh, and I was trying to adjust to being a lunatic, and, and I wasn't doing very well at it. And, and so he began to, he, he saw something. He saw me struggling, and, 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 and he began to become like a spiritual advisor, for lack of another. So you're a deeply spiritual guy, you know? And uh, he began to give me literature and say, well, Martin, you ought to try and read this. He was a brilliant scholar. You know, he was a Rhodes Scholar, and he taught at MIT and he, uh, for a while before he became a director, and, and uh, he speaks like three or four languages, and he, including Latin, of all things, and he's just an extraordinary, brilliant man. And, 
The final text he gave me to read that he thought would help me was the Brothers Karamazov. And I, I couldn't put it down. And a week later, I finished it, and I, and I, I just felt this, this draw towards uh, getting uh, right, you know, with myself. And, and I came back to Catholicism, of all things. But I came to a church that was much different than the one I'd left years before. I, because, you know, I was raised Catholic, and I love the faith, and, and, and I thank God for it. But I, I, I was very often in the, oh, Jesus, you know, you, you know, I got ill in the Philippines, damn near died, and I had the last rites. It's the first thing I could think of doing. And, and after that, I was terrified that I would, I would die and be condemned to hell, you know, for my, for my sins. And mind you, I deserved it, but, you know. <laughs> Uh, but now I came to a church of, of I, I had this sense of that I was loved. And I think all of us come to that eventually, you know. Sometimes we have it as children. But when you come to that, uh, that sense of, that not for anything you did or didn't do, but that you're loved. You're just loved. You're loved. And, and it's your own fault. And you deserve it. And it's fine. You didn't earn it. It's okay. But you're just loved. And it makes all the difference because then you see it in other people. And you begin to act more human. You didn't realize I was such a hopeless windbag, did you? <laughs> you didn't realize you were going to come in here and have a, have a lecture on Catholicism well, and the nature of the Catholic Church, did you? No, you're talking, you are. Are the are are uh, exits still blocked? <laughs> <laughs> God love you. Are you guys getting up and leaving? <laughs> oh, Jesus. He's just checking that I told I'm the truth about the sorry. fire exits. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. <laughs> terribly sorry. Try the Brothers Karamazov and change your life. You're, you're talking about a spiritual... I think it's my brother. <laughs> what? You're talking about a spiritual journey there. Exactly. Uh, That's what it you, was. You, it was an awakening. Okay. But you've skipped, you've skipped a huge part of that spiritual journey. I did. Um, which Maybe is, That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what I well, mean. Well, the journey that one... Captain Benjamin J. Willard went on was a spiritual journey too. I was watching um, in the preparation for this this afternoon Eleanor Coppola's documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, Hearts of Darkness. Oh, I hoped you wouldn't mention that. <laughs> but there is, I mean, everybody knows, I think, that famous scene at the beginning of Apocalypse Now where you are in your underwear, you are drunk, and this is on record that yeah. you, the actor, was drunk, not just the character. And you do this scene where you are absolutely raw, bare, open to us. And there's a point at the end, you, you tumble over the bed, your hand is bleeding from having cut it on the mirror, and you say, my heart is broken. Oh. <laughs> when did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> I think you probably know. <laughs> Um, okay, I, 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 yeah, I have some vague memory. It's very hard to watch that stuff, you know. Yeah, I'm wondering how different it is to watch that from watching, you know, well, you know Daniel I, Barry. Well, you know, I watched the, before that, 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 that's a documentary that was going to be released uh, as a feature, you know, and so, and I had interviewed for it, you know, but I had never seen the footage, and they, they sent it to me to see before it went out, to just see, you know, so that I'd know what was coming down, and I saw it. Oh, jeez, I was just stunned by it, because I'd never seen it. And I was watching it with a friend who didn't know me back then. And, and they said, oh, geez, you're in for it now. And, I, and, and they said, how do you feel? And I said, well, it's interesting because that is who I was. That's not who I am. So that allowed me to get beyond it, yeah, you know. Was that a type of transcendent experience as well, though, that, moment, that scene? 
Yeah, surely it was. Yeah, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I, would, I would do things like that. You know, the, the insanity of alcoholism will take you to places of despair and darkness where you, you think that's who you are. And you explore that, you know, in your brokenness. You, you only explore the darkness because you don't understand that you're loved, you know. And uh, so I, that's where I was at that time. And so, yeah, it was a very dark, scary place. And, and w the scene started, it was my 36th birthday. I'd been drinking all day, you know, and celebrating. And I didn't know what was coming, but I knew I, knew, I, knew I was going to wrestle one of the demons here. I knew I was going to, I was going to see a part of myself. And, I, and I, some part of me wanted to see it on film. I, had, I, I knew that something was different about this one. It wasn't just a, you know, alcoholic rage. It was a, a moment in time that I had to look at that and see what other people, family members, had seen in me, you know? This terrible, terrible despair, darkness, self-loathing, guilt. I, rem I remember Francis wanted me to see the footage before, because they were sending all the footage to Rome to be, you know, processed and then sent back with the pasta. <laughs> this is Francis Ford yeah. Coppola. Yeah. And uh, so he kept telling me, he said, I want you to see that footage. You must see that footage. And I said, no, I'll never, ever look at that footage. I don't want to see it. It's not, not important to me. He said, well, he said, you know, I could cut that so that you'll look like Mickey Mouse. And I said, yeah, but then you'll look like Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually say that. But it's one of those things that you wish you say, you know, after you've been bullied on the street, you know, and, somebody, and, and by the time you get home, you beat the bully up and, you know. You must have had enormous trust in him, though. I mean, in this, we're talking about a shoot that yeah, had to his gone credit, awry, he, to he, say he the tried least. to stop that scene, and I begged him to keep going. He tried. You can hear him in the documentary. Yeah. Saying, Martin, you are right. Let's call it quits. Kind of, you know, and I said, no, no, I'm going there. Yeah, keep, it, keep it rolling. You know. James Dean had been a big hero, and that's evident in Badlands. I mean, yeah. Kit Carruthers. That was part of the film, I mean, part of the script before mm. I got it, you know. But he looked like, in, in Badlands, yeah, that Kit Carruthers said, looked yeah. like James Dean. And oh, I loved James Dean. Oh, jeez, I loved him. I, everything changed when James Dean came. Some of you young people probably don't have a clue who he was, but he, he you know, he made like three movies. He starred in three movies, and he was killed in a, he was 24 years old. He was unbelievable. And the first time I saw him was East of Eden, and he was already, had been killed months before. I hadn't, I hadn't a clue who he was. And I remember I couldn't leave the theater. I couldn't get up. I stayed through the second showing. In those days, they'd show it twice, you know. And I couldn't believe this guy and what happened. And it took me a while to realize that this guy had transcended acting. It was about behavior in front of the camera. And it made all the difference. Even though we'd had Marlon Brando and, and Monty Cliff before then, this guy, whoa. He really transcended the craft, at least motion picture acting, to a level we'd never seen it. It was something deeply personal and transcendent and, and behavioral. Whew. He was powerful. If you had James Dean in Badlands, you had Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And, and another icon, and I think hero of yours yeah, as well. Very much so. I adored him. Yeah. Even at that point in your career, would there have been any sense of you know being intimidated inside, thinking I now have to go and yeah, act with Marlon with the it was yeah, everybody was intimidated <clears throat> by Marlon, and and that was the you know that was really the only problem. 
was the, you know, with him was the image you brought to him, you know, because he didn't, you know, the last thing he, he'd talk about was movie making and, or acting or any of that. He wanted to know who you were, where you came from, what you did, what was your family like, you know. And uh, yeah, I adored him. He was a great, great man. I, I had some, we stayed friends the rest of his life. And uh, yeah. If you think yeah. of Apocalypse, you know, which was this great anti-war hymn in some ways. Yeah. I was really surprised yesterday when we were chatting and you said to me that had you been drafted into mm -hmm. the army in the early 60s, mm -hmm. you would have quite happily gone to, to fight would, in yeah. Vietnam. First of all, explain why you didn't go. You know, in, when I was a boy, uh, there was a mandatory uh, draft. You had to register on your 18th birthday, and then you were called up eventually. And I was classified uh, 4F because I had a birth defect. My left arm had been crippled when I was uh, born, basically. And uh, I was just kind of put on a list, and then, of course, most of my classmates were Vietnam era guys. A lot of them went to Vietnam, you know, that didn't go to college, you know, they ended up in Vietnam. And uh, yeah, I would have gone to Vietnam. I had two brothers in Vietnam. I had one who was decorated, it was a Marine. Uh... Oh, sorry. You're thinking of them? Yeah, it's my. Uh... Uh, my brother John was. Uh, was a decorated hero in Vietnam. Uh, he survived it, uh, but he uh, he uh, had a very difficult, very difficult time. And he he uh, he's, he's one of my heroes. Uh, he's still alive. God love him. And a just remarkable man. I could talk endlessly about him. Uh, my feelings for him are with joy. I promise you. Uh, he. Uh, yeah, he joined the Navy. He wanted to be a doctor when he was a boy. We came from a kind of a poor family when higher education was difficult, but he thought, well, if you join the Army or the, the Marine, or the Navy, you'd get medical training along the way. And so he became a corpsman in, in the Navy. And um, the Navy, uh, you know, was involved in Vietnam in that uh, in 64, after the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, it committed the, the Marines, and uh, they are part of the Navy. So they took all the corpsmen that they could get from the Navy and took them into combat. And so my, my brother John had never trained ever uh, to fire a weapon, nothing, found himself in some horrible conflicts and he lost all his friends. And uh, he, he, he became a, a lunatic, a raging alcoholic. He came home and all he wanted to do was beat people up and get drunk and he'd end up in jail and beat people up in jail. You know, that he was just having his terrible life and he finally had a moment of clarity and got clean and sober and uh, joined AA and he was the first one in my family to join AA and we were just so inspired by this guy whom we thought was never going to live to be 25, you know. Mm. And he could never go to the memorial in Washington, you know, the Vietnam Memorial. Have you, any of you been there? Have you seen it? You know, it's really a grave. It's underground. If you walk toward it from the west, you don't see it. You could fall off if you keep going. It's underground, you know, you come around the side and you see it with all the names. It's very powerful, and he couldn't go. And I asked him, I said, why don't you go? And he said, because I don't want to be, I don't want the, the, my friend's deaths confirmed. I said, ah, oh, John, you should go and celebrate them, you know? And years later, I was playing a guy, who, a, a homeless advocate living in Washington. I said, John, come up now. I said, there's a service, there, there's a, a Vietnam veterans organization that will, if you come to the wall, They'll escort you. 
because two guys committed suicide there. It's horrible. And uh, so they didn't want that to happen again. They said, you come to the wall and you're, and you're feeling edgy, uh, we'll escort you. We'll get somebody from your unit or somebody who was in, you know, in there when you were there. And he said, okay. He came up and he had this wonderful experience and he put it in the past. And he did. He went along and, and felt them. You feel the names. That's what they do. You see them. He did. Yeah, he lost about 47 friends. Can you imagine? Yeah. Did, at a later stage then, did you protest against the war? Because you're I did, yeah. a fairly mm -hmm. active protester. I did, yeah. When I became aware of what was really going on, you know. I remember John and I, John was doing a play on Broadway in 1964, and he came to visit me, and he was on his way to Vietnam, and he was all decked out in his dress blues, you know, his marine dress blues. And we had a fight in a bar. He grabbed me. He was going to pummel me. He said, he was on his way. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm on my way. Serve my country. I said, you're a lunatic. You know? He came across the table at me. Yeah. Good would, figure. Would President Jed Bartlett have got out of Vietnam quicker? He wouldn't have gotten in in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't. Oh, jeez. Uh, is, yeah. is, is he the democratic president of the, of the United States that you would, his policies, are they, are they yours? Are they the ones you'd oh, love they to would see? Be, yeah, they would, yeah. He, but he was drawn on real guys, you know. They wanted to take a character. Mind you, he would be, he would be a, f a fantasy, of course. But they wanted the very best of 20th century presidents. And so they took John Kennedy for his intelligence and his looks, of course. <laughs> picture of him in every house in Ireland. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't know I colored my hair. When I <laughs> and uh, for the, mor the moral frame of reference was Jimmy Carter and the, and the tenacity and charm of Bill Clinton. That's who Mr. Bartlett was. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Aaron Sorkin in the West Wing is what we're talking about. Oh, yes. God you love added him. in the Latin and you added in the Catholic. I did, true? yeah, yeah. Why did you want those aspects there in the character? Because I wanted Bartlett to have to deal with every situation in a moral frame of reference. Never would he be uh, solely political or, or solely patriotic or nationalistic. I wanted him to deal with the moral aspect of every decision. It was going to cost him. There's a, there's a scene, I think the episode is Two Cathedrals, where you yeah. speak Latin in yeah. the cathedral. And you give God a hard time. Well, Jed Bartlett gives yeah. God a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever, did you agree with him on that hard time? What was he giving him the hard time about, do you remember? Well, he was complaining about everything. Poor me, ah, oh, jeez, close up the church. I want to have it out with himself. And that's what it was about. And I asked Aaron, I said, why Latin? He said, I, I want him to speak in God's language. I didn't know God spoke Latin. <laughs> <laughs> How good is your Latin now? Uh, it's not so bad. I, I was an altar boy. In the, in the 50s, so I knew some of it and some of the responses to the prayers of the Mass and so forth. We learned them in Latin, because so I did them. Yeah. A bit of Latin as well. In, yeah, in, some in of it. Yeah. yeah, some of it's there, yeah. yeah. But uh -huh. I want you to talk to me a little bit about John Spencer. Oh, jeez, God rest him, I adored he, him. He played Chief yeah. of Staff Leo McGarry. You, you told me again yesterday about the fact that you and he were sort of the the daddies on the set. Well, yeah, we were the old couple. The doyens. We were the parents. 
Well, we were the oldest guys. You know, at the time we started, uh, I was 59, John was 53. We both came from the theater, you know, in New York. We had, we, we had hardcore street fighter days in New York. You know, we were disciplined. We were players, you know, of the real craft. And now we were leading this magnificent cast. And we knew that if we faltered, they would have excuse to falter. So I, I just, this is an absolute honest to God truth. There was never a day where either one of us were ever late for a day shooting or on the set doing a set. And as a result, the others had nothing to complain about. You know, I said, the old man is there, the old man is there. Look at these old guys, happy as Larry to be here and do the work, you know, and showing. And so they had nothing to complain about. Mind you, we had guys, we started with seven and they were the most extraordinary group. They had all kind of gone through their addictions and their divorces and they were to, and their careers were at a place that they saw this opportunity and realized, oh my God, is he really doing it? Is she really doing it? Oh my, my, this is the place to be. But John, John and I were both, you know, as I say, old theater guys, very disciplined, but we were also two old drunks, you know. And you know what they say about, and we're both in AA. And uh, you know what they say, all you need for an AA meeting are two drunks, a pot of coffee, and a lot of resentment. <laughs> and we had all three. But, and, and one day, I think I told you this yesterday, yeah. one day somebody was visiting the set and they knew I was in the program. And they said, just out of curiosity, how many meetings do you go to, say, in a month? AA meetings, you know? And just then, John Spencer stepped out of his trailer and I said, you see that fellow over there? He said, yes. I said, every time he says hello, it's an AA meeting. <laughs> and it was true. Oh, God, I adored him. You were also talking about these great walking and talking scenes. Yeah. And were. this was where you, mm. oh, somebody likes the walking and talking scenes. <laughs> Somebody's going to be walking toward the exits in a minute again. I can tell you so, that. You know, you have, you have, I don't know who you have. You have Alison Janney, you have Rob Lowe, you have Bradley Whitfield, you have you, you have John Spencer, and 74 other people, it would seem, all walking yeah. down the same yeah. corridor. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a tradition in the show. At least one sequence in every show had what we call a walk and talk. And it started in the first episode, which we call the pilot. It was like a two-hour pilot, which kind of established all the characters and the perimeters of the show. Mind you, I only had like one scene. I came in at the end. It's sometimes uh, filming is very tedious because, and we were very specific doing it in the old-fashioned way on the West Wing. We would shoot a master, and then we would cover in you know, kind of medium shots, and then everybody would get a close-up. And so the editor had many, many choices to go to. And the important thing was uh, the, the, the storyline was fluid and kept moving through. That, that's paramount always. Because some of the storylines and the language is very complex. So we had to make sure that the editor had the, the scene in hand and he could make it understandable. And so uh, they fell a little behind in the pilot. Because in the pilot, you take extraordinary conditions. You want to make the best possible thing. So you go overtime, you spend more dough, and, and you try and make the best possible product you could do. And they were falling behind. And there were scenes that covered 13 pages that took John Spencer from the moment he arrived at the White House on this regular working day into his office, and he had a couple of pages in there, and then he went to another office, a couple of pages there, and then to another spot a couple of pages there. Then he walked down to the Oval Office and he had a couple of pages there. So the director 
Tommy Shlami decided, let's put them all together because then we won't have to do any coverage. And if we can get it in one shot, it'll be fantastic. And they did. You see John Spencer walk into the, 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 the West Wing uh, entrance and he's got a copy of the New York Times under his arm and he says to his secretary, get a hold of the Times, they misspelled Gaddafi's name in the puzzle today. And so and so, John, we need to know in a meeting and I have a new it. and tell the Joint Chiefs I'm not fine, but the president is this and that. If I, oh, thanks for that message. Oh, give him to send flowers to so and so. And he's talking the whole time and he gets messages. Somebody said, nah, I don't want to talk to him. He wants money. This guy wants to, this and tell the president. And somebody stopped, is it true the president fell off his bicycle? Yeah, that clutch, he's up, but he can't even walk now. For God's sake, he can't even, and, he, and, he, blah, 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 blah. and he's talking, 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 and he gets to this door, and he walks through this door, and the camera starts pulling back as he goes over to the desk, and he starts putting things on the desk, and you realize it's the Oval Office. That's the first indication you realize where you are and who he works for. That was the start of it, and I knew that as soon as the network saw that 13-page walk and talk we were in, and I was right, because um, they had to know who works in that office. Yeah. And one episode then. then became seven seasons. It you did. were in every uh, yeah. single then episode. I, they I called think. me up and said, uh, uh, <laughs> are you the guy playing the president that has only one episode every five? Yeah, how would you like to be in every episode? I would, I said, thanks. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I negotiated a new contract. <clears throat> I'm, uh, just, uh, I'm thinking about the power of that program, you know, and, and the fact that by season seven, at the end of season seven, there's an Hispanic, Democratic U.S. president. Am amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And Can I tell you a little bit about that? Not that I'm, I'm hard-pressed for words, as you know. Uh, <laughs> but it's interesting because um, Jimmy Smith is a, a Hispanic actor, uh, came on and he was going to run for president and he would get the Democratic nod and I would support him. And Alan Alda would be the actor who would get the Republican nod and they would run against each other. Now, each year is planned uh, beforehand with the writers. Before the season begins, they get a general idea. It's not always in stone, but generally true, they'll say, well, the, this is the, they call it the arc. The arc of this character is so-and-so, and he will become, and they will get, and this and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Jimmy Smits would be the Democratic nominee, Alan Alda would be the Republican nominee, I would back the Democrat, of course, and Alan Alda would win. That's, I would leave office to a Republican. That was in stone at the end, and we all knew that. Then in December, of uh, 05, we, we knew that the NBC was, was finished with the series, but they were talking to another network. I don't know if you know this or not, and we were all happy as Larry that it might go on in another network, and they asked me, would you participate as an ex-president? I would, I said, as long as I had a chair at Notre Dame, and a, you know, University of Notre Dame, and that I would have a portfolio like Jimmy Carter. I could go into the third world and complain about uh, you know, their uh, elections and their, you know, all the, that's human rights violations and so forth. And uh, they said, yes, of course. And so I agreed to do that. Then, unfortunately, in December, uh, John Spencer died very suddenly of a heart attack. And we pulled out of the negotiations for the new network to go on. And the, the scenario changed. And Jimmy Smith would win the election. And John Spencer his character was running for vice president. 
So the series would end on a constitutional crisis. And that's what happened. And uh, I can't say that it had an influence on the possibility of, of Barack Obama's running, but it didn't hoit. I think at this point we'll um, open it up to the floor for a, for a few questions. They've all gone. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, I'm um, a fan of yours. Um, your, your iconic role in um, The Departed for Martin Scorsese won his, won his first and only belated Oscar. Uh, th that, oh. must have been, that must have been great. Very gratifying, yeah. And the young kids yeah. on the block, DiCaprio and those guys. Oh, they were grand. I'd worked with, our, uh, with Leo before on a film called uh, Catch Me If You Can, and uh, he was very uh, generous, uh, warm kid. I thought of all the kids that became megastars, he was one that uh, I knew had a long career. He's mm. just a, such a genuine human being and a sweetheart. But um, about The Departed, uh, Nicholson's character, was, uh, was basically Whitey Bulger. And um, I came into the film as a replacement. There was a wonderful Irish actor playing that part who had gone through a very difficult time. And he came to the States and he was not able to, uh, he, he, he had a tragedy in his family and he couldn't stay focused here. So he asked to be let go and they called me. They called me on a Sunday morning and said, this has just come down. Could you be uh, in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, and begin shooting on Wednesday morning? That would be in less than 72 hours. And I knew I was off for a few days of the West Wing and I could do it. I said, but who's directing? They said, uh, Marty Scorsese. I said, I'll be there. Because <laughs> I adored him and I had always wanted to work with him. Do you um, want to say who that actor was, or do you want to keep that as a private matter? I have to keep it private. I wouldn't want to say, no, but uh, it was a tragedy. And, uh, and there you go again, you know, how, how life will deal you something, that, you know what I'm saying? And you never know, the, the mystery and the, the adventure, you know. Martin, it's a great pleasure to be in your company. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, a question, you, you mentioned uh, about the process of your craft as being... Uh, expressing your personal pain and your personal joy publicly, um, if I'm paraphrasing correctly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering if you have a method or if you can uh, tell us a little bit about how you then go about protecting that um, personal... Ah, good, good point, yeah. Mm. Could I tell you a little story? And <laughs> I know there are no little stories with me, but if you're not in a hurry, I can explain to you, I think, in, in a very personal way, an example of it. Uh, my father, God rest him, died in 1974. And he died kind of suddenly. I'd seen him a few weeks earlier because he was in Ohio. And I'd passed through and he was in the hospital. And, uh, but it didn't seem so serious. You know, I thought he was in there for checkups and all. And, and he'd never tell you anyway. You know, my dad was so sweet. He, I, I, even when we were adults, he still called us honey, you know. He would say, I say, how you feeling, Pop? Say, ah, oh, honey, you know, he's not well in here. I'm sick in here, blah, blah, blah. Where do you, you know, he was like, they did great Galician accent. And uh, I went home, and a few weeks later, I got the call that he passed away. Oh, dear. And so there was uh, three of us on the West Coast, three siblings. My brother, uh, Mike, God rest him. My brother, Alfonso, God rest him. Uh, my brother, Joe, God love him, and myself. <laughs> And so I was sort of like the daddy, you know, kind of. 
And so I organized everybody to go home on the same flight uh, for the funeral. And as I was preparing to go, we got this emergency call that my sister Carmen, who was coming in from Madrid for the funeral, had become deathly ill on the airplane. They had to take her off at JFK and took her right to the hospital. She was at death's door. Oh, well, again, I'm daddy. I'm saying, okay, fine. You lads go to Ohio, and I'm going to go and see after Carmen, and I'll join you in Ohio. How'd that be? Okay, fine. So everyone goes off to Ohio. I go off to New York. Carmen had had a tubular pregnancy on the plane. They thought it was food poisoning. She was literally bleeding to death. And, but they, she recovered. She was recovering in this hospital in Queens. And I took a room nearby to stay with her and, you know, be pregnant. We had no other relatives there. And so uh, as time went on, I realized, you know, I couldn't leave Carmen and go back to Ohio, which is about 600 miles away, for the funeral. And so I decided, I called the lads and said, you know, go on with the funeral without us. I'll stay with Carmen. And, uh, and that's just the way it is. You just, you know, you just accept that. Okay, fine. So uh, five years later, in 1979, I'm doing a, a part on a miniseries called Blind Ambition. It was a story of John Dean, who was Nixon's lawyer, who was involved in the Watergate and who came clean and exposed the whole corruption and brought the Nixon administration down. And at one point in the story, John Dean, who was very quaffed, you know, and very high and very uh, proper, uh, was thrown into a tiny, uh, smelly cell, uh, a six by 12 inch cell with an iron sink and a bed and a toilet. And he was in a three piece suit and just quaffed hair and shaved and so forth. And he was made to see what he had done you know, that he was brought to this situation. And in the scene, he broke up. And John told me this is what happened. The first time they threw him in a cell, he just fell completely apart. He wept uncontrollably. And so I was called to do that. And so on the morning, we, we shot that scene. The, the previous scene, I was doing a little something, and this was on my mind. How am I going to do that scene in the, in the cell? Because there's no dialogue. And so I talked to the director, uh, George Schaefer, God rest him. Uh, you think I don't work with the living? <laughs> uh, and I said, uh, what, is your, what is your plan for this, George? Oh, he said, uh, your back will be against the lens, so you'll reveal the cell as you walk away from us. And I want you to go to the end of the cell, about 12 feet away, and, and lean against the wall, turn to us, and then I'll come in. And then I said, what? He said, well, then you'll fall apart. I said, okay, fine. And so I'm watching him uh, prepare the cell and light the scene, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, how, what do I do now? And there was a guy, a, a set decorator, and he had a big uh, felt pen, and he was writing things that prisoners would say on the cell. This was shot in a studio, you know. But he wanted to make it look like a real cell, so he was writing all of these things you know, so-and-so is here, and I'll be out in 10 days, and, and God bless America, and, and, and you know, all these things. And I'm watching him, and it finally occurred to me. And I went up to him, and I said, could I borrow that uh, grease pencil? You can. And, and I walked to the end of the cell, and I, can you hear me if I do this? And I put my hand on the top of my head, and I asked the cinematographer, I said, when you get in close, you're coming in this far. I am, he said, and I said, can you see this spot? right here above my head. I can, he said. So I held my finger there and I turned around and I wrote 
Ramon Estevez. And I gave the pencil back to the lad and I said, call me when you're ready to shoot this scene. And I went back and I got into a three-piece suit and quaffed my hair and I waited for the scene. And when the time came, I went down to the set and they said, all right, Martin, let's do this for the margin. You have to practice for the, to make sure everyone's got it right and the focus puller. I said, I'm only gonna do this once, so let's practice and get it straight and then we'll do the, okay, they said, fine. And I leaned up against the camera and action came and I walked to the end of the cell, I turned around and I mourned my father. He was the only one that ever called me Ramon. So I saw that as I'm facing and I said, all right, this is for you, Pop. And that's it. And I fell apart. <laughs> all right, now, uh, thanks. <laughs> Another uh, fire exit uh, moment. But the One point is, actors know exactly what this is about. You go to that well. You store all of these things. You don't even do them on free. It just happened. You know, you, all your pain, your joy, your experiences, you own them personally, and you choose where to go and when to expose that. But the audience doesn't know that. The, the audience for that, that moment thought I was John Dean going in there and just feeling sorry for himself because he'd been brought to this terrible place by his immoral behavior, you know. But for me, it was a, it was a moment to say thanks to my dad and I'm sorry I missed your funeral, you know. And that's what part of the joy of being a, an artist is, you know. It was, it was a part of myself that remained unfinished. I, I owed that to myself. I needed to mourn this guy that I adored, you know, and I missed saying goodbye. And so I did it on camera. There is a scene at the very end of Stella Days where Father Barry says to Marcella Plunkett's character, Molly, he's quoting from St. John the Cross. Yeah. He says, in the evening of life, we will be judged by love. And by love alone. Lo mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, my favorite quote. Where are you now? If you, if you measure your life by that, how well are you feeling in terms of love? <laughs> well, uh, as I'm inclined to do, I, I'll, I'll tell you, are we getting near the end? We are, this is <laughs> We're it. We're getting near the end of my life, I think. Uh, well, let me tell you a little story, if I may, but I think it would, uh, I, 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 I'm very uncomfortable flying, and I don't even think about it until I'm right there, ready to go, and I say, oh, why did I choose to die? Choose, you know? And I get the beads out and start praying, and as the plane rolls down the runway and it's shaking and rattling and I'm, I'm saying, oh, Lord, oh, please get us up safe. I promise I'll do this, I'll do that. Oh. And then it gets up fine and then we hit some turbulence. I get the beads out again. Oh, Lord, please take the turbulence away and I'll be good, I'll do this. All right, this went on for years. And one day we were working 18, it seemed like hours a day for like a week in Washington on the West Wing. And I got to the airport on the, at the end of this shooting thing, so exhausted. I was sleeping standing up, so I got first in line, I got first on the plane, I buckled in the seat, and I fell fast asleep. And the next thing I knew, I was jolted awake, the plane is roaring down the runway, and all, everything is jigging. I said, oh my God, I couldn't get to the beads, nothing. And I said, thank you, it's been wonderful. I couldn't have asked for more, I couldn't be happier. I'm so grateful to you. Thanks for all of it. It's been wonderful. I couldn't have asked for anything else. And if I don't make it back, look after the ones who miss me the most. So I think I'm still in love. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Sheen. Oh,
Our thanks to Miriam Allen, Gar O'Brien, and everyone here at the Galway Film Club. John Mannion was on sound this afternoon. Neve McDonald was the runner for the programme, and research was by Econ Ryan. The programme was produced by Kevin Reynolds.